ready as we all get notes and pens and coffee, donuts, snacks, a seat. Um, I will go ahead and start with prayer as this is a, a weighty task and we want to ask the Lord's blessing. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the ability to come and gather together as, as the local expression of the body of Christ to edify each other and be edified and primarily to give you glory. We pray that in this, uh, this lesson that I give that you would be present in a palpable way, that you would give me clarity of speech, that you would give my hearers clarity of, of hearing, that the information conveyed would be understandable and that your spirit would use it to your glory and to the great edification of, of this body and those who hear it. Father, I, I'm an imperfect vessel, unworthy of treating of your wondrous topics. I pray that you give me not only clarity of speech, but whatever mistakes or misspeaks I make would be purified by the Spirit and made un understandable and corrected in the hearts and minds of my listeners. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning. Today, I have the distinct privilege of going over Interpreter's House. Um, I was very excited that I was able to uh, put my name down for this topic, as this is a portion of Pilgrim's Progress that I've always enjoyed. Um, for those who may not have been here the previous time, have no fear, I have a review. So we're going over Pilgrim's Progress. Um, Christian, having been convicted of his sin by reading the good book in the City of Destruction, says, what must I do to be saved? And an evangelist comes and tells him, flee from the wrath to come. Go toward the wicked gate, toward the celestial city. So he does so, yelling as Andrew's, one of his favorites uh, passages in it, according to what he said, is yelling with his fingers in his ears as he ran, life, life, eternal life. He is pursued uh, by obstinate and pliable. Obstinate does not come with him. Uh, pliable does so until difficulty. The Slav despond and uh, gets out. But because of the burden of the guilt and weight of his sin, Christian is uh, snared until help pulls him out and sends him back on his way. He then meets worldly wise man, is tempted by legalism, and proceeds toward the city of morality until the weight of the law is about to collapse upon him. Evangelist comes back and says, why did, you why did you leave the good path? Go back and do not turn to the right or to the left. You get to the wicked gate, he knocks, and um, goodwill opens the door, pulls him in before the fiery darts of the servants of Beelzebub, whose city, whose castle is nearby, can, uh, can hit him. He then points him toward the house of interpreter, and now we are there. Okay. Oh, one point I forgot to, uh, to mention is Christian still bears his burden. This is a point that I often forget, so this is important to remember. Christian still bears his burden. Okay. And two of the blanks, which I did not highlight, were help, that's the first one, and goodwill, the second. If you miss one, I will be happy to 
go back. Okay, so he gets to the house of interpreter and knocks on that door. And interpreter, or rather interpreter servant, lets him in and guides him through multiple rooms or, or uh, scenes. The first one being the picture of the only guide. As we go through what this is says, it is, in, it is uh, important to remember, this is the first picture that an interpreter shows him. And it is a picture of a man with his eyes up toward heaven. He holds what is termed the best of books in his hand. The law of truth is on his lips. The world that is at his back and he pleads with men with a crown above his head. Uh, Derek Thomas, a Ligonier teaching fellow, believes that this is actually, Bunyan was thinking of his own pastor, John Gifford, when he put this in, when he uh, wrote this. Um, an interpreter says that this man in this picture is one of a thousand, so it's not common. And he is a father, and uh, Bunyan quotes, 1 Corinthians 4.15. I don't remember if I, I don't think I put the actual words in there. Would a person graciously volunteer to read 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15? And a second volunteer in a moment to read Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you. Thank you, Troy. So these are scriptural evidences of what this, this um, good preacher or only guide is, is to be. He is a father of, of people in, in Christ. He, is, um, he labors in quote-unquote childbirth. As, as Paul says in Galatians. And then, very importantly, this only guide also feeds them with the appropriate spiritual food. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow into salvation. Uh, and then, elsewhere, Paul in ch Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 and 13 says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. So this only guide, he is a spiritual father in, in some sense. He, uh, he labors with in, in childbirth for his, for his uh, sheep, but he also gives them the food that they require. The, uh, the spiritual milk when they are young and immature in the faith, and then transitioning to the uh, meat and potatoes or the, uh, the heavier, denser, weightier matters when they are ready and not backwards. Um, so this only guide, his job and his duty is to know the truths of his book, the, the best of books. And that's your blank and to unfold the dark and hidden things to sinners pleading with them. Now, not dark as in bad, uh, but those things which are not obvious. Alistair Begg says the plain things are the main things, the main things are the plain things. 
and in, in many ways that is true, but there are also those things which are not easy to understand. Peter says of Paul's writings that there are, there are things that he says which are not easy to understand. And it is the, the job and the duty of this only guide to unfold them through the Spirit's working in, in much study of his best of books. And also to bring uh, the gospel to, to sinners that they might turn according to the Spirit. The crown above this best of preacher's head is the reward in the life to come that is key. It is not necessarily a reward in this life. Um, as I said, this picture is shown first, and that's important because this man is the picture of the only true God-sanctioned guide. False teachers do and will come, will and do come, but we are called to ignore them follow only the true God-sanctioned teachers. Christ himself said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And then Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13 says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So Christ promised that they would appear. Paul says that they have appeared. They are here now. And even in, in Pilgrim's Progress previously, there have been false teachers, false um, prophets or apostles. Can anyone tell me one of them that we've seen in Pilgrim's Progress already? Worldly wise men, yes. He says, this is the way, for, forsake the true way. And he points toward legality and uh, his son's civility. So the next, the next uh, portion, the next room is actually a room. It is full of dust, as if never swept. An interpreter calls a, a man in to sweep it, and he, he sweeps madly, but all it does is uh, cause the dust to erupt into the air to such a degree that it is actually, it's actually choking Christian. He, ne he nearly chokes on it. Then interpreter calls another uh, young woman in with a bucket of water, and she sprinkles the room with the water, and then she sweeps it, and the water holding down the dust, it is easily swept up, and the room is clean. Interpreter goes on to say that this dust is the sin of the unregenerate heart. That's your blank. It is choking and thick. The first sweeper, being the law, does no good but to make it more apparent, whereas the dust was once on the ground or on whatever furniture was there. You could overlook it if you were uh, looking too quickly. However, the law makes it apparent it chokes you. It makes the sin apparent. It revives it, increases it. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified since the, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Earlier, uh, later on in, in Romans verse chapter 7, verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Again in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, 
Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Here we go for the water. That is the gospel. It does not hide the sin. The water does not make the dust go away, but it makes it manageable. It ties it down, subdues it, makes it manageable so that it can be cleaned. John chapter 15, verse 3, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And Ephesians 5, 26, That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So this room gives the lesson that the gospel is the only way to clean the unregenerate heart. Because remember, that's what this room signifies. Without the gospel, the dust chokes, kills. But with the water of the gospel, it is cleaned up to such a degree that the room is now clean. So the clean room being the regenerated heart with the gospel. So the law alone cannot do so, cannot clean the sinful heart. The next room has two children sitting in in seats. Both are promised you will have the best things, but you must wait. One chafes at this, is impatient. The other waits patiently. So the one that is impatient, according to his desire, is given given the things. But he wastes them on his own passions and then has nothing. So the one who is impatient is named passion. He signifies the men of this world refusing to wait for the best things in favor of lesser things now. Now, in my mind, I have a a picture with names. I won't say the names, but you may have the names in your head as well. But can can you think of a a broad term that meets this, that uh, in today's world, that, that this would describe? If you want to say names, you can, but there's a, a type of gospel of which I'm thinking. The prosperity gospel. Live your best life now. Name it and claim it. Or as a person in this church terms it, blab it and grab it. So, slight anecdote. At the post office where I work, I have a coworker who said that, yeah, I'm living my best life now. And he's five feet from me. And I said, I hope not. And he looked at me. What do you mean? Well, I sure hope heaven's better than this. Wow. I never thought about it that way. So in that, in that time, I was able to, to share with him the, the hope of the world to come, because I sure hope heaven's better than this. And in the Bible, it is promised that it is infinitely better. So passion prefers the one bird in hand to the two in the bush. That's a a common proverb, at least it was so when I was in school. Um, But I would rather have the two birds later if I had the promise of having the two birds. Two is better than one. So these men live their best life now, but in the end they will have nothing. Because if their best is now, then what happens after death? You can't take anything with you. Job says, naked I came into this world and naked I shall return. 
The second child, named Patience, is the man of the world to come, waiting for the promised best things. And in so waiting, he actually gains two things. Those best things, but also the glory of the world to come, which will never decay, never wear out, cannot be stolen, is perfect, incorruptible. This teaches us not to covet things here and now, but wait patiently for the things yet to come. Matthew 6, 19 through 21, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A semi-popular uh, minister of the gospel said, if you can't say amen, you have to say ouch. For this one, for me, that is an ouch. Because the things of this world, they sparkle. And it is a, it is a struggle in the flesh to, to not hold on to those things. Great as they may be, but if they supplant God in my heart, they are an idol and must be killed. So this room also shows that a person cannot have both. They can't have the things now and in the life to come. The things now are temporary. The things unseen yet to come are eternal. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Am I going too fast? Okay. The next room is one that is, uh, I've, many people know of it. it. It seems to be a popular one. People remember its place, the unquenched blaze. So he walks into a room and there's a fire or a fireplace, depending on the version you have. And there's a blazing fire and there's a man in there with water in a bucket and he's throwing water as fast as he can. And normally, when water is thrown on a fire, it dies down or goes away or at least is uh, lessened in its fury and heat. But this fire burns brighter and hotter. Now, for a science person such as me, my first thought is Greek fire. No, not so much. But it does burn, burn hotter. And Christian is confused. He doesn't understand. And so interpreter leads him to the other side of the wall. There's another man with oil, pouring it on the fire as fast and faster as the man with the water. And so the oil burns, and the oil burning water doesn't quench an oil fire, as anybody who works in food services learns. So this fire burns brighter and brighter and hotter and hotter. Interpreter explains that this fire is the work of grace in the heart of the believer wrought by the Holy Spirit. This is not a fire that comes from the person. It comes from the spirit. Because the man with the oil is Christ. The oil being the continual grace. I realize I'm doing things a little bit backwards according to notes. But the fire being the work of grace brought by the spirit, the oil being the continual grace given to the believer by Christ. 
which, as Christ says, the man with the oil, the man with the water, doing the opposite would be the devil or his agents, striving to extinguish the flame of grace, or those in the world who try to quench your zeal. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It is also interesting to note that this man doesn't just take the entire vat of oil and dump it on the fire. He doles it out bit by bit because we are not promised all the grace we need at once. But how are we promised it? Day by day. The Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Because if we had it all at once, then would we trust in Christ? The manna of the Old Testament, they were given it one day at a time, barring the, their day before the Sabbath. But even then, if they gathered more than they needed for those two days, it would rot. We are given what we need one day at a time. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So this wall on either side, there is the fire. The wall signifies the blindness of the unregenerate man because Christian could not see the man with the oil until he went to the other side. He couldn't see through the wall. So this this wall signifies the blindness of the unregenerate man to see the means of grace in the regenerate man. You can't see the oil until you go to the other side. And speaking to the man with the water as the, um, a, a servant of the, of the world, of the devil, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, for the, world of the, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, being saved speaks to the sanctification, not the justification. Important clarification. The next one was a little bit fuzzier to me. The guarded gate. So Christian is, is led to see a grand palace. And he wants to go there, so interpreter brings him nearer. And then there is a gate guarded by many armored men. There's a scribe, who in my mind's eye is a short, probably balding man with glasses, and he has uh, a quill pen and a book, an inkhorn. And he is writing down the name in his book of any man who dares approach the palace, any man who dares to run the gauntlets of these armored men. Many men come, and they're turned away and turn away in fear. But then there comes one, who is determined to make an attempt. And so he says to the scribe, set down my name. He draws his sword, places his helmet upon his head, and runs headlong into battle. Regardless of the harm which he would doubtless incur, he ran headlong into the battle. Just so we must set our minds like flint to do what we are called to do in running toward our Savior, regardless of the worldly harm we may incur. Having girt ourselves with 
the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, and with the sword of the spirit in hand, we do battle. Hebrews chapter 12, verse one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, because not only was there the scribe, but there was also those men in the, in the heavenly palace. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So in this room, the armed men guarding this gate set upon him with great fervor. They do their utmost to hinder him, to kill him. But he fights his way through the tribulations of life as a believer. Pilgrim's Progress says that he deals great harm and receives great harm. He does not get through unscathed, just as we will not get through unscathed. But he does win through, and he is welcomed to the gate with the words, come in, come in, eternal glory thou shalt win. He is clothed in gold, even as they are, even as we will be clothed in gold and covered in Christ's perfection. Here, Christian says, I actually understand this one. He doesn't need a lot of interpretation. But here, it is also important to note that now he says, I'm good. Let's go. I'm, I'm, I don't need any more pictures. I understand what's going on. Here we go. Interpreter detains him and says, just two more sentences. We, like Christian, can become enraptured with the sight of the glories to come. He had just seen a picture of the celestial city. He had just been shown that Christ pours the oil of, the, of grace upon the, the fire of the believer, of the grace in the believer's heart. He has been told to be patient, and he's been shown the picture of the, the only uh, God-sanctioned teacher. So he is he has starry, starry eyes, rose-colored glasses. He is ready to proceed along. But interpreter, knowing that there's two more sights, detains him. The first one being the caged man. I did a lot of research into that. I looked at um, Derek Thomas. When he taught through interpreter's house, it's about a 30-minute lesson. He goes over every other site in about seven minutes and spends the rest of the time on this one. This is a scary picture. Very scary. He goes into a dark room and there's a man sitting in an iron cage. Christian says, what's going on? So an interpreter bids him talk to him. Christian goes and talks to him and the man explains that he was once a professor. He was bound for the celestial city with great joy. And now he's in the cage because he relaxed his vigilance. He sinned against the light of the word, grieved the spirit, tempted the devil, provoked God's anger, hardened his heart, and can no longer repent. He is without hope because he has crucified Christ afresh, despised Christ's righteousness, counted the blood an unholy thing. In short, he's committed the unforgivable sin. Now you see why this is a scary one and why 
why this is so thought, thought of and scary. Paul is clear. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Later on in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Bunyan, in his book, he quotes much of this verbatim, or nearly so, a very close paraphrase. Christian is obviously very upset, and he says, why did you do this? You were on the right path. You were bound for the celestial city. Why did you do that? And this man said he did it for the lusts and pleasures of the world, which now, at that point, gnaw him like a burning worm. Christian says, but the, the prince of the world to come is a compassionate man. Can you not repent? The man says, he cannot. He is condemned for eternity, to be miserable in his cage of despair. Here, Derek Thomas notes that in the time of the Puritans, John Bunyan, they believed that the unforgivable sin was actually a sin a believer could commit and thus not be admitted. This was a re- to them, this was a real fear, a real possibility. So in looking, I, I went through Ligonier, I went through uh, Desiring God, I looked on, um, I looked at multiple, multiple places, and their consensus is that the unforgivable sin is not possible for the truly regenerate. So this is a great hope. If you are truly regenerate, nothing can take you from God. But this, the lesson is not... Um, unuseful for us today. Because here, Christian is remembered, urged to remember this man as a cautionary tale. To not take your eye off the prize, to not relax your vigilance, but run straight toward Christ. So, Because even though we, if we are true believers, truly regenerated, we have the Spirit, we cannot become unsaved. Once saved, you are saved, the perseverance of the saints. But that does not mean that we are incapable of leaving the path of light. John is very clear in 1 John chapter 1 that it is possible for the believer to leave the path of light temporarily. Paul urges those who are spiritual to retrieve or, gri- or take those who are off the correct path to take them and restore them in gentleness. So the question is, what is the unpardonable sin? All I can say is what Jesus said, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What exactly that is, is a little bit unclear. But what we do know is scripture is very clear. If you are truly regenerate, nothing can make you unregenerate. You cannot be unsaved. But this is a caution to remain vigilant and to persevere. The last picture, the terrified sleeper. This one threw me for a bit of a loop. A man waking in great fear. So Christian walks into the room and there's a man sitting up in bed, terrified. 
He wakes up in great fear because he had a, day, a dream of the day of judgment, the great and awesome day of the Lord. Basically, this man dreamt of the events in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1, 11 through 12, which says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. This man, this sleeper, was not vindicated at this great and awesome day. He was left on earth. The man saw many caught up into the clouds, but he was not. Christian asked him, what was the most scary thing? And he said, it wasn't the day of the Lord. It was that he was unprepared. What scared him most was that he wasn't taken up and then at his feet, the gates of hell open. And he hears what's going on. So here, the, the, the warning is fairly, fairly plain. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 and 3 says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. I have four children. Labor pains do not come when they are most convenient or when they're expected. So this is a, a warning. And the question that is asked in Pilgrim's Progress is a question that we would do well to consider ourselves. Are you ready? My family and I went to the uh, Institution for Creation Research this past week, and it was, it was awesome. I highly recommend it. But at the end, they have a summary of, of the gospel. And the question on the wall, he is coming back. Are you ready? So then Christian is very much uh, somberized, made solemn. You understand what I'm saying. And an interpreter gives him, he sends him off and gives him a commission. Christian is sent off with these words. Keep all these things so in your mind that they may be as a goad in your sight to prick you forward in the way you must go. But he's also given this comfort. The comforter be always with thee, good Christian, to guide thee in the way that leads to the city. So Christian goes on, burden on back, and he has this poem on his lips and in his ears. Here I have seen things rare and profitable, things pleasant, dreadful, things to make thee stable. In what I have begun to take in hand, then let me think on them and understand. Wherefore they showed me where, and let me be thankful, a good interpreter to thee. So by way of summary, and just to distill the lessons which, which I gleaned and hope you gleaned as well, we are to follow only those teachers who are like this man in the picture, the truth on his lips, the best of books in hand, 
back to the world pleading with sinners. The law cannot save. It condemns and kills. The gospel can and does save. This must inform us in our evangelism. Martin Luther was very plain, you must have law and gospel. For without the law, why do you need the gospel? For without the gospel, then all the law does is condemn. Patience will be rewarded, but the patient will be reviled. Passion ridiculed. Patience for waiting, like, look at all the stuff I got. You could have it too. But in the end, he had nothing. uh, Christ will supply all the grace that is required day to day. The world will fight against the believer tooth and nail. But we must stay the course, persevere to the end, run the marathon, not the sprint. We must also anticipate the day of the Lord. It can come at any time. This does not mean that we sit idly by and wait, because that is not what we are commanded to do. Martin Luther also, in answer to the question, somebody asked him, what, what, what do you want to be doing when God comes back? Luther said, planting a tree, because that's what I do every day. The day-to-day toils, struggles, pleasures. That's on my notes. Did everybody get the, the blanks? Do I have any questions? Comments, concerns, cries of outrage. I have several resources on the, the unforgivable sin, what it is, what it is not, and why it is not something that the true believer need worry that they have committed. I'd be happy to give those to anybody who, who wants them. There being no cries of outrage, I will close this in prayer and be dismissed. Oh, great God, we thank you once again for this opportunity to gather as a, as a local expression of the body of Christ. We thank you for the truths which your, your word teaches. We pray that you would take these lessons which I have hopefully conveyed well and truthfully and apply them to our hearts that we would that we would do as we ought, that we would be good Bereans, comparing every teaching that we, which we receive to your perfect and true word, rejecting the chaff and savoring, keeping the good, the true wheat. We pray that you give us the grace each and every day, and thank you that you will each and every day. We pray for the courage to run headlong toward you no matter what, occurs beside. We thank you that you hold us tightly, that nothing can pluck us from your hand. We pray you would speed us on to corporate worship that we may continue to glorify you today and every day, that we would edify each other, 
and that you would come back in your perfect time. We pray it all in the name of Jesus.